Hi, I'm Carl Blanks, co-founder of Conversion Rate Experts. Uh, here at Conversion Rate Experts, we do just one thing. We make changes to our clients' websites and then we put our necks on the line by insisting that they carry out scientific A-B tests to verify that we've significantly grown their business. No other company has designed pages for as many of the world's top 500 websites. Uh, we've applied our methodology to Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook and many others. Now, this episode of the podcast is a recording of a talk that we gave at Conversion World Conference, and the talk's called Why Some of Your Projects Take Ten Times Longer Than They Should and What to Do About It. Uh, in it, we describe how to identify and eliminate blockages in your marketing activities, making your company move uh, modest ten times faster. Now, that sounds ridiculous, and that's why we love the content of this talk. It's so valuable. At times, I'll refer to a slide that you can't see. Now, you've got two choices. You can either imagine what the slide would look like, or you can visit our podcasts page at conversionrateexperts.com slash podcasts. And that links to the slides. Uh, maybe the slides look better in your imagination. In fact, maybe the, maybe the talk sounds better in your imagination. Uh, in which case, just pause it now and imagine it. Hi, everyone. What I'm talking about now is why some of your projects take 10 times longer than they should and what to do about it. Now, let's just take a look at this, uh, this little car on the right there, that little red car. Uh, can do over 100 miles an hour. The driver, has been, uh, the driver has been driving for more than seven years. Very, very qualified driver, very adept driver. That little car over there, again, can easily do over 100 miles an hour. The driver's been driving for 15 years. This one here... The driver used to be a, a policeman. He's, a, he's an amazing driver. He did an advanced driving course and he's, a, and he's driving a car that can do over 130. This guy's a bus driver. He drives for a living. All these people are amazing drivers. They've got good cars. So why is it, why is it that none of them are actually moving at all? Why are they not moving? They're in a traffic jam and no matter how skilled they are, no matter what tools they've got, none of them are moving because... The roads that they're moving on, the process that they're following, has terrible bottlenecks, hasn't been well enough designed, and so everyone's skilled, no one's actually getting anywhere. And that's what my talk's about. My talk's about how so many companies have got a lot of very bright, keen, motivated people who are working till, you know, eight o'clock every evening. They're all really ambitious, they're very smart, they know a lot about web marketing and web design and conversion and usability. Um, they're using all the right tools. They're tracking, managing their tracks, their tasks using uh, getting things done methodology. They're, they're keep storing the tasks in OmniFocus and Basecamp and lots of other things. So why is it that, uh, why is it that projects move so slowly? The fact that, that I find incredible is that We've, we know companies that have taken 30 minutes to implement uh, uh, split testing software. We also know companies that have taken six months to implement split testing software. Exactly the same job, uh, but one of them is 8,760 times faster than the other. It doesn't take, <laughs> doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to work out that that company on the left has a massive advantage over the one on the right. Often the ones on the right are larger companies, but not always, not, not always. So this is what the talk is about today. 
how do you know if this is if this problem pertains to your company is if you feel that everyone's productive but everything takes ages to happen if you feel as if things take longer to happen than than they seem to be if you look and you think well hang on that you know it, for example implementing that that split testing software it's only two lines of code can it really be that difficult to to paste it in some documents that we actually own the web pages and also that some projects never finish if you find that um that within your company there are lots of projects that were started six months ago or a year ago and which still for some reason aren't actually aren't actually finished yet aren't published uh, here just a little background about our company because it, i think it explains um how we know about this um this uh this first picture is an aerial view of a processing plant i used to be uh, a scientist i did a phd in high temperature materials for lining uh, combustion chambers and then i moved on to become a process engineer where i learned a lot about uh, optimizing like large-scale industrial processes this this um, plant was uh, over 100 meters long and there's a massive amount of money involved when you're optimizing processes that are running 24 hours a day and have and uh, with such huge, with, with so much, yes, so much resting on it. They are lorries. I think those those things lined up there just to show the scale of it. And so normally when we talk about web marketing, we often talk about it in terms of um, process science, process engineering. Today, the process we're talking about isn't the process of turning your visitors into customers. Today, the process we're talking about is the process of turning your ideas into actual into money into finished web pages which are generating money for you my co-founder and i originally used to work in-house like many of you and um, we tripled the sales of the business using conversion rate optimization uh, in within 12 months in over a period of three years we grew the company's sales by 12 times and one thing that we weren't so aware of then is how how agile how fast moving that company was because lots of our processes were very quick we could implement things amazingly quickly and that's what i want to kind of help you out with and give you some very useful techniques and tools that you can take straight back and start applying to your own business what i'm hoping is that you'll look back to your own business at the end of this talk and suddenly things that weren't obvious to you you suddenly start spotting things that have been staring you in the face for a long time that you've been doing wrong um, we wrote an article about what we did and Google took notice. They invited us to become the first Google partners for Google's split testing tool. Uh, now we have worked with clients who, uh, with websites in nine languages in 22 countries. So we've had an amazing amount of insight into which companies are, uh, you know, what, what the differences are between the, the, the highly functional, highly fast-moving uh, companies and, and the others. Uh, and we've worked with some really fast-moving companies, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and, uh, and lots of smaller businesses, but uh, and, and always focusing on getting results. So it has been um, a very, a very good way to to learn about what works in web marketing. And what you'll probably find is that Amazon, for example, Amazon's not just a company with that's gone a long distance and has got huge economies of scale, but as a company, they are implementing extremely quickly, even now. So many of these companies, their real strength is that, back to that road analogy, not only are they blazing ahead, they're travelling much quicker. They're in the fast lane while lots of other companies are still in traffic jams. So how do we create processes or how, how can you create processes that deliver value efficiently? 
The first point today, a manager is, anal- is analogous to the designer of a road network. And it used to be that a manager was the person with a task list who used to walk around telling everyone to do, bossing people around, uh, keeping things in order. These days, software can do a lot of that. And largely, a manager is someone who can design workflows and design work in a way that makes it easier to carry out, more um, idiot-proof, in, 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 you know, not, not in a derogatory sense. As a manager, you need to be thinking about how to design efficient workflows. And that involves knowing about queuing theory, knowing about the kind of process engineering techniques that I'm going to cover now. You must be able to build processes. And that means you need to identify what the customer values. And then you need to build a process where each step is a supplier to the next step and a customer of the previous one. Uh, And steps pull work. So many companies still, they push work through the system. You know, someone will come up with an idea push it to the copywriter, push it on, and you end up with, with traffic jams in that case. So you, you think in terms of pull. Now, here's a process which will make that easier to understand. If you can see there, there are two elements. There's the green boxes and the yellow boxes. The green box is what you call a resource. It's a value giver. That's in a very abstract way. Um, in terms of engineering, this could, it could be a machine or a person or information. If it were a machine, it could be a car-assembling robot And this orange thing could be a piece of steel that's gradually being processed and turned into a car. For all of the rest of this talk, I'm going to assume that the that the resource is going to be a worker. It's going to be a person, for example, a conversion practitioner, and that the flow unit is information. It starts off as an idea. And as we work from left to right, the idea gradually gets turned into a web page and finally put onto the website. So that's the process that that you're managing within your company. Now, ideally with the process, neither the worker nor the work unit would be sitting around because you don't want anyone just doing nothing. You'd want it. Ideally, you'd have it so that this person second from the left here, who, let's say, would be the copywriter, you'd like it so that the second that the copywriter's finished working on this bit of work, that they pass it on to the next person. And just at that point, the next idea to be used goes straight to the copywriter. So the work's flowing constantly and there's no pileups. And the problem with that is if there's any variation in the flow of work units, and there always will be because everyone takes different amounts of time and some bits of work will be problematic. So then one of them must sit around, either the person, either the worker needs to sit around or the piece of work needs to sit around. I think you're going to be surprised at the, the next couple of slides, actually, the next four slides. Now, timelines, I'm going to tell you about timelines. Now, worker efficiency is the percentage of time that a worker spends delivering value, i.e. working. So there's the little worker there. And if we were to say to the worker, how did you spend your last few weeks? Then the worker might produce this chart of the last few weeks. Green means times that they were working on something. And red is time that they were waiting. So just doing nothing, waiting for work to come in. In most companies, you'll probably find that even this is an understatement. And so the worker efficiency is the time spent giving value divided by the total time. You'll probably find that it's, it's extremely high for, for your company because most are. Work unit efficiency is something that most people haven't even thought of. It's the percentage of time that the work units spend receiving value. So there's the little work unit. There's the little wireframe sitting there. And if, we, if it could talk, if we could ask it, 
How did you spend your last few weeks? It might have a different story to tell. It might say, well, I, I turned from an idea to a first draft at this point, and then I sat around for a long time. And then on Thursday afternoon, someone worked on me for two hours. And then again, I sat around and I was on Bob's desk and his in-tray. And then finally, he did this little bit. And most of the time, the work units are probably just sitting around doing nothing. So for web design, this is the web pages I view. And the work unit efficiency is the time spent receiving value, i.e. being worked on, divided by the total time from start to finish. And this is like uh, calendar time, for example. Now, if you maximise the worker efficiency, then the, that's one way you can do it. You can maximise worker efficiency. The workers are king and the work units have to wait. Now, this looks like a typical processing plan, doesn't it? Where you can see that this person here, this worker, is working on this one, but there's two waiting there. And then the second that they finish this bit of work, it'll go into a queue waiting for the next person. So that's what you'd call maximising worker efficiency. And as far as processes go, that happens if you imagine going through an airport. You know what it's like when, you know, if this is the passport control person, this is the security person. And then the, in that case, the work units are actually the people, the, the people who are going to fly. And they spend most of their time waiting for these uh, passport check people and security people who are treated like the king. And, uh, and there's lots of waiting around. Same if you go for an operation, you'll probably find that you go to the doctor, then you see a specialist, and then you have an operation. But there's a lot of waiting in between because these people are, are maximised in terms of their efficiency, in, th in terms of their busyness. You might think of this as keeping the workers busy. That's one approach. To do this, each worker must have an uninterrupted supply of work units. That is, the next work unit needs to be ready as soon as the worker becomes ready. And so you need a buffer, a queue of work units waiting to be processed. But that lowers the work unit efficiency, obviously. Now, another approach would be to maximise the work unit efficiency, in which case the work units are king and the workers have to wait, which looks really weird, doesn't it? Because it strains the idea that this wireframe designer is now just sitting around waiting doing nothing while waiting for the work to come in. The typical examples of this type of process for work unit efficiency are, imagine medical care for a president, where the president goes to the hospital and you, and you know what happens when a you know, senior politician goes to for an operation, then the team are just waiting for them. The president doesn't arrive at the hospital and then wait around for six hours like many of us would, and then finally get seen to, and then is left in the corridor for an hour and then the operation happens and then it's... A, not at all. They, the people are already, the workers are already just waiting for them. The same when uh, a visit by a head of state to a foreign country. If, uh, I don't know, if the Queen goes to visit a, a country and she's being taken on a tour of a car plant, she's not going to have to wait for half an hour for the car plant workers to be ready. They'll just be standing there waiting for her to arrive. So, in web terms, you might think of this as prioritising a project. Probably looks quite unfamiliar to you, this. To summarise that one, to get high work unit efficiency, each worker must be ready as soon as the work unit becomes ready. So you need the workers to be waiting, and, but that, by definition, lowers the workers' efficiency. So which type of business should yours be? Should it be high worker efficiency or should it be high work unit efficiency? Now, most people and most companies would assume that the answer is high worker efficiency. They're the people we've got in short supply. We need to make most use of them keep the workers busy. It's not so dangerous if a wireframe is sitting doing nothing for a couple of days than it is if your graphic designer is sitting with his feet up on the desk. Now here's the paradox of worker efficiency. Worker efficiency creates 
a lot of problems in a company, what we call secondary needs. Now, the problems arise from the fact that the work units are sitting around and you think, well, why is that, why is that a problem? Is it really that much of a problem? The, the wireframe is hardly going to complain or cause trouble while it's sitting around. But here are some of the many kind of insidious uh, cause of problems. Firstly, the work units need somewhere to store, to be stored. They need to be stored on task lists or in people's heads. And so what you need then is you need a system for storing large amount numbers of tasks. So you need a, you, know, you need a, like we mentioned before, some kind of task management system. And, uh, and that's just the start of it. Then we need a way of retrieving them. So once something's gone into the task list, we need a way of, of, of pulling it back out. You need to do rework. For example, you need to reread material to bring yourself back up to speed. Have you ever been in a meeting where pretty much everyone in the meeting can't even remember what the meeting was about? And at the start, everyone's frantically reading the notes from last time because no one can remember what we're even meeting to do. And everyone's preparing for the meeting because, because you know, it takes 15 minutes to remember where we were up to last time, a month ago when the project was happening. Amid all the mess, it's hard to see the obvious. You lose the clear view of the business. It's possible. We've, we've known companies where, where there's so many tasks, and there's so many task lists all over the place that projects have literally gone missing and someone will just say, whatever happened to that, uh, that test we were going to run on uh, the Telefriend programme? And someone else will say, oh, I don't know, we'll have to look into that and they'll rummage around and find it. So it's amazing how quite quickly you can get to that. You can't really see what's important in the business. You can't spot what's going wrong. There's so much, it's like looking at it at a congested road network where it's actually hard to see where the bottlenecks are. Um, work, you get work that only exists because we chose to work this way, like planning for meetings, for example. Um, the window of opportunity closes. For example, a key person leaves the company, a project had been running for over a year, a new checkout process or, so what, or whatever, and, and the project ends up, no one, no one even knows how it's happened or what's happening. Your customer, for example, your boss, colleagues or client, become impatient and unhappy and want reassurance. So just actually providing that reassurance takes time. That's secondary work. The work unit itself develops secondary needs. Uh, the work unit, may, maybe it goes stale. An article that was nearly ready to be published is no longer relevant or it needs reworking. Um, a missed opportunity. Sometimes, sometimes by the time a project's finished, we'll, we've seen projects where by the time they're ready, the moment has passed and it's not really something that can be done anymore. Here even more, work in progress is money that's tied up. This is one thing that's obvious if you work in a car processing plant and you've got, I don't know, 300 tonnes of aluminium all sitting there in the warehouse and that's all been processed and bought. But it's less obvious when you're working in information like we all are. So the most harmless type of to-do is a someday maybe. It's one that's an idea that you stick on a to-do list and say someday we could do that, but for now let's not work on it. The most harmful type of to-do is one that's already had money spent on it. So imagine that each work unit, everything on your task list that's already started, if you look at all your tasks and think, you know, what's the dollar value? How many person hours of work have been done on that so far? Um, that investment only pays out when the work unit's published. And so it, when it reaches the end of your process. So if you're actually to put a dollar value on all of the work in your to-do, it can be quite upsetting because you think, wow, you know, we've had like people have worked weeks on this project and it's still not shipped. And we're actually currently someone start, someone is starting another project before this one's even finished. Also challenge the checked off task. Once a task is complete, 
often a huge amount, a huge hidden type of work is in progress is work not fully exploited. Um, we know someone who created a video for a charity, spent uh, about, a, about a month travelling to the charity and putting together all the footage, finally got it approved. And then, I think it's about two years later, realised that the charity had forgotten to actually make any use of it and only 500 people on YouTube had seen it. And so, yes, yes, in a way that was published, but it had reached the end of one process but hadn't gone all the way into being fully exploited. So, yeah, 500 people for viewing a video that was, that was a, a month's worth of work. The golden rule with lots of this is you can solve a lot of the problems within your company that I've talked about by keeping the work in progress low, minimising the amount of new projects that get started before old projects get finished. I mean, there is one argument to say, like, you know, I spoke to a business owner last week and said, do you ever start projects before an existing project has finished? And he said, oh, yes, we do that all the time. And I said, why? Why? Did you just get bored? Did you think you weren't busy enough? Um, and, and so often it's, it's a real problem in companies because it's so easy to start a, a project without remembering how much value in terms of work in progress there already is in the chain. Um, a good question for how to detect secondary work is consider, or even ask if you dare, whether your customer would willingly write a cheque to pay for this activity. So whatever you're working on, if you think, is this, am I actually working on work or am I working on work, secondary work that's created by the work? And if you ask, would the customer pay for this? Often you'll think the customer would be horrified to know I was working on this, never mind pay for it. So that's a good way to spot when you're doing that work, work that's only created because of your, um, your process. What causes low work unit efficiency? So work sitting around. Um, To-do lists and task, task management software lure us into storing work. In a processing plant, when the, when the plant manager comes around and sees a massive warehouse full of half-made parts, they're kind of understandably angry because they can see that that's a waste of money. I wouldn't say that uh, web marketing managers or web design managers, when they see, when they see a large task list, they don't have that same uh, understanding that that's, that that's just a bad thing. A large task list is a bad thing. Um, and also to-do lists are like warehouses. They hide problems. And it's often very hard to spot where the bottlenecks are if those buffers exist. In companies like Toyota, they don't have warehouses in between because if part of the process isn't keeping up with the rest, they want to be able to see it. And so the whole line comes to a standstill. If, if one part of the, of the line breaks down, the, that visibility they have is incredible. And another thing to keep an eye out for is whether the, the rate of tasks started exceeds the rate, of, the rate of tasks completed. If you find that you're starting tasks faster than you're completing them, then um, you've clearly got a problem there. Other types of waste. When you see a handoff from one person to another, again, that should be something that you should be training yourself to spot as an insidious type of waste in a, in a company. Alan Ward says, handoffs happen when we separate responsibility, so what we do, with not from knowledge, how we do it, from action, the person who's actually doing it, and from feedback, the person who learns from the results. Every time those things are separated, you, you typically have to add an extra person to the project when you have work being handed off from person to person, or whenever any of the above are just, are just arbitrarily split between two or more people. 
The reason it's, it's bad is because every time you have work handed over, firstly, no one knows what's actually happening anymore because everyone only gets part of the picture. And also the new person has to just to bring themselves up to speed with what's happening. So often you have to like load two persons brains up with the information. And there are lots of other reasons. Um, an extreme example of this, I know a fr- I have a friend who works for uh, a company where every month they were creating microfiches of all the documentation and posting them off to a different office as backup. And he thought, I wonder what happens to those microfiches. So he phoned up the other office and said, what do you do with them when you receive them? And they said, we actually forward those ones on to a different office in a different city. And so he phoned up the person there and they said, oh, well, we forward them up to an um, office in a different country, actually. And he finally said, well, what do you do with them when they arrive? And they said, oh, uh, we don't need those ones, so we um, they get shredded. And it turned out at the end of this whole process that these microfiches were being shredded within about two months of them being created. And the reason was because no one person within that chain uh, could see the big picture and could see um, how nonsensical it all was. So that's a good example of one of the many forms of handoff waste. Other types of waste that you might not be aware of. Overproduction. Creating work that's better than needed is an obvious type of overproduction. Um, in particular, uh, beyond beyond the level of polish that the customers even care about. Uh, another type of overproduction is creating more work than can be used. Uh, this is common in companies, um, in particular in companies where, that are heavily regulated, where the bottleneck becomes the people who do compliance. And so that's one thing to be aware of, that, that you're not creating, or that there aren't stages of your process that are creating work that can't be used. Um, creating features that the customers don't value. Uh, the next one, work that gets scrapped because it isn't good enough. Now, one option when that happens is to train the person, and the other one is to remove them from the activity. If someone isn't producing work that's actually getting shipped, you do need to question whether they are actually delivering value at all. Uh, test it yourself. That's one thing that's, that's very useful, is, um, is make people responsible for their own testing. Facebook famously has a process where where the um, the engineers are responsible for what they call delivering the project all the way through till your mom sees it. And so if you come up with an idea for Facebook, you have to code it yourself and you have to push it all the way through and babysit it all the way through into actual into production. So that, that's like a, a, a very effective way of ensuring that the people who are creating the work aren't just handing off stuff to people who are then, you know, fixing it for them. And the other one, which sounds counterintuitive but can be useful is lowering the standards sometimes one of the most valuable things we can do with clients is to is to if if they're very hesitant to run tests for example on a site or hesitant to send out surveys or is to kind of encourage them to keep the the throughput of ideas because because um the great thing about the web is that there is a you know control z key and if something doesn't work, you can usually undo it. And so things don't have to be so polished with uh, with the web as they do with, you know, with print media, for example, where the second the print run goes, that's it. You know, 10 million copies are printed. And finally, rework. Work spent checking work and work spent returning work is another type of waste that once you start to become aware of it, you spot how much, you know, you might spot that in your company. You suddenly realize how much time has been spent on rework. 
A few tools for process improvement that we find really useful. The first is Kanban. Uh, if you don't know what uh, Kanban is, it's probably just worth looking it up on Wikipedia. Um, Kanban is uh, it's, it's basically uh, effectively a task list where, where the number of tasks at each stage in your process aren't allowed. You're not allowed to have more than, say, three or four bits of work at any stage in your process. And what's great about Kanban is it, it's, um, the methodology prevents you from having too much work in progress at any one time. So it fixes all those problems I mentioned earlier. Another one is five whys. It's uh, also called root cause analysis. Really, really root cause analysis is a better name for it. Uh, it just doesn't rhyme. Five whys is, is, is where whenever something happens or something goes wrong, you ask why it went wrong and keep asking why until you get to the root cause. Sometimes the root cause is a lot deeper and, than, um, than you might expect within a company. But once you've found the root cause, you often find that the root cause is the cause of other problems. Deeper than that is what is the theory of constraints charts, which help you to identify what the bottlenecks are in your company. And I'll talk about that a little bit, a bit later. The Pareto principle is fantastic for helping you to prioritise work. For example, prioritising a call centre. We've, in the past, reduced the number of incoming calls to a call centre by, I think it was two thirds, by using the Pareto principle, finding the most, the, the, the small number of uh, problems that are causing the most outputs. Getting feedback from customers, and by customer I mean whatever is the next stage in the workflow, and that's really valuable to ask when, it, when you actually plot out what your workflows are in the company. Even if it's okay, then the person who designs the, the final designs, then they, they are providing them to their customer who's implementing it. Whoever you're providing work for, or, um, make sure that they give feedback so that you can understand exactly in what ways you're providing value and in what ways um, you aren't. The only real way of knowing how to improve the efficiency is to ask your immediate customer to identify the waste that you've been creating or working on. The theory of constraints I, I want to tell you about because I think it's a fascinating uh, tool for understanding how, for seeing your business in a different light, in, in a more profitable light. Theory of constraints was created by a guy called Elia Goldratt, and he was an engineer and he found this process which works well with processing plants but works with, with businesses as well. And it's finding the bottleneck in your business. So step one is identify the constraint. Uh, bottleneck is probably a better word. Identify the bottleneck in your business. So how can you find out what the bottlenecks are in your business? And here's some little clues. Where is there work waiting to be processed? Before the bottleneck in a, in a production plant, you might find that before this, the machine that pr stamps the steel, there might be a huge pile of steel waiting to be stamped because obviously work piles up before a bottleneck. There's like a traffic jam. So look, where are the traffic jams in your company? Where are th where's the work piling up waiting to be processed? Now, next, which resources are waiting for resources to send work to them? So which workers are wake waiting for other workers to send work to them? And at the end of each iteration, ask the team... What's slowing you down or getting in the way of you doing a good job? What would help things to move faster, better or cheaper? If you ask those questions, you'll probably find that you can identify where the bottlenecks are. Now, step two is exploit the bottleneck. So basically, make sure it's working flat out. Um, this is subtle. It should be working flat out on the bottleneck scale, not doing non-constraint activities. If you have a person who works on compliance and that's the bottleneck to getting things out, the 
compliance person might say, well, I'm busy, I'm working 12 hours a day. But if you discover that the compliance person spending six hours a day on compliance, but last week they spent five hours fixing their computer and uh, three hours showing a visitor around, then you think, actually, that, you know, that, that compliance person isn't working flat out on compliance. They need to be working flat out on that bottleneck skill. Someone else can fix their computer. Someone else can do their expenses for them. Make sure that whatever that, that skill is they, they are working on. Now, on the next slide is subordinate everything to the above decisions. Now, ensure that the processes before are always ready to give work to it and that the processes after are all ready to take work off it. Um, this is subtle. To maximise throughput, freeing up the bottleneck isn't just the, the most important thing in your company. It's the only important thing. So if, if you have like a series of people all waiting and the compliance person is the bottleneck, then you can think, oh, yeah, I get it. The compliance person's a, a bottleneck. That's really important. But actually, it's the only important thing, getting, the getting that bottleneck to work faster because the overall flow rate of the whole process equals the flow rate of the bottleneck. So the only thing you can do to grow your company is to increase the rate through that bottleneck. Similarly, if someone or something is wasting the bottleneck's time, they, that, they aren't just an inconvenience, they are slowing down the whole process. So I'd say this is slightly counterintuitive in that it's not just important, it's much more important than you realise because the, often the whole... The, the rate of growth of your whole business depends on the rate of production of that one bottleneck. Basically, treat the bottleneck as a king, you know, as, as we mentioned before. Next, elevate the constraints, so widen the bottleneck. How can we increase the capacity of the bottleneck? Can it be more people? If that's not possible, can we reduce the requirements, you know, reduce what's needed to be processed at that stage, bearing in mind that you know, the huge cost? Finally, uh, sequential debottlenecking. Once you've broken a constraint, which means basically once it's no longer the bottleneck, then there will be another bottleneck. So whenever you've finally said, OK, then compliance is no longer a problem. We made sure that the compliance person was working full time on compliance and we hired someone else to work in compliance. That's no longer the bottleneck. Then you'll immediately go back and discover that somewhere else in your process, somewhere else in your workflows, there's a new bottleneck that's preventing the rate of growth of your company. It sounds obvious, but... Um, but I think it, it can be easy to think, right, then at last we've tackled that problem and to move on. Uh, the next one is good practices. Work in small batches, even when it seems like a bad idea. Reasons to use small batches. The first one is what we always, a phrase we use a lot, seek the swift sword, which is no quick, you want to know quickly whether it's going to work or not. So the quicker you can get something out the door and you, you start, you learn the second whatever you've created is in the real world. When I was doing my PhD, often I would have to um, photocopy, say, 20 scientific papers. And that usually meant going to the library, finding all the papers. They're all in big volumes, having a huge pile of books heavier than I could carry often. Um, take them to the photocopier and then photocopy those papers. And one thing I learned was that I should always start off by photocopying one paper and then going back and doing the others because always something went wrong the optimist in me always used to think oh no this time will be fine and i know the photocopying machine's on so I'd, I'd walk with all these papers and then i'd get to the end get the photocopier and then i'd start to photocopy and i'd realize oh there's a paper jam it's an engineer's problem or the photocopier hasn't warmed up yet or there's a queue of five people 
waiting to use it or but it's amazing how I could never predict and it would always surprise me how many ways in which the whole thing wouldn't work and I eventually got this discipline of working in small batches because because things often do go wrong and the best way is to work your way through the whole process just once the next one is and you might think of this as tracer bullets often with web marketing it's useful to think of tracer bullets just to get quick insights run like small little mini projects tiny little things that you implement and uh just so you can learn exactly what um uh, just what, what's going to happen and then double down on if something if it did work uh, you get the payoff sooner which is great because work has a shelf life like we talked before and less money gets tied up in inventory um uh, obviously if you work in small batches then the, work, the amount of work that's all in your inventory is obviously less working in small batches is hard though uh, you need in particular to break your habit uh, of bundling work uh don't have nice to have features just ship the minimal viable product the minimum that's needed to prove what it is that you're about to try to prove or test craigslist amazon facebook google are great at this they all avoid unnecessary graphics they always just add the basic minimum of what's needed uh, a couple of phrases that are useful is yagni which is you ain't gonna need it um often people find that programmers often anticipate Thing, features that'll need to be in the software that never turned out to be needed. The other one is do the simplest thing that could possibly work, because it's surprising how often um, how often it does work. There's a book called Obvious Adams, which you can get for free online because it's a really old one. I'd highly recommend it. It's the shortest shortest business book you've probably ever read. It's about you can read it in about fifteen minutes, and it's all about this guy, Obvious Adams, who's always doing the simplest thing that could possibly work and getting away with it. He wants a job at a large company, so he starts off by contacting the founder of the company and saying, um, I would like to work for you. I've no idea if I've got the qualifications yet, but it just seemed like the obvious thing to at least let you know. And, yeah, it's amazing how easy it is to ignore the easy option, the, the straightforward option. Why it's hard? Combining one task with other tasks that need doing but aren't necessarily dependent so the most dangerous phrase in business is while we're at it. If you think you, you don't want to think while we're doing X, it'll be more efficient if we do Y at the same time, because what you're doing there is creating a project that's got dependencies is probably twice as big. So whenever you think, oh, well, it would be crazy not to, you know, while we want to do what we're working on the checkout process, we're going to revamp the whole checkout process. There's something quite exciting about those big projects, but there's also something massively inefficient. We know a company that's, worked for i think it was took over three years to redesign the checkout process because they kept adding requirements into it other one is don't polish one side of the bridge while the other side is rusty it's tempting to keep working on something till it's perfect but it's better to just improve it until it's no longer the worst feature of the business and then go and work on work on the worst feature of the business uh, second good habit reuse or repurpose existing work people tire of their own work long before others do so spend more of your effort promoting work once it's published there's a famous story of how henry ford walked into his advertising company and said are we still running that advert you so i'm sick of seeing that ad and they said well actually it still hasn't even we haven't begun the campaign yet because he was seeing these things internally all the time he was actually tired of something that hadn't even been published next good habit number three Constantly seek customer feedback, not just for the end customer, but for the customer of every process. So, and uh, surveys and user tests are 
great. We do an amazing number of user tests for everything. Even for our HR documents, we do user tests because it's the easiest way of getting good feedback. I want to just tell you, tell you something that we find really useful and we've not heard anywhere else apart from on a health and safety course from years ago. Um, there's a, I think it's the DuPont health and safety process. I'll tell you an example, actually. At university, when I was doing my PhD, I had to dissolve some glass off the surface of some ceramic. And uh, removing silica is not easy because not many things dissolve glass. Um, you can't use washing up liquid. And so the only thing that could be used is um, hydrofluoric acid. Now, the problem with hydrofluoric acid is that you need... Um, it's really nasty stuff because it, it goes on your skin, but it doesn't burn your skin. It actually it like soaks into your skin and then dissolves the bone. It goes through to your bone and dissolves the bone. So you don't immediately feel the problems, but then like obviously it's agonising. If you get just a, a drop on your skin, it would be like, really disastrous. And so this process for health and safety is really useful, and it's applicable to all work. Step one is remove the activity. I'm going to show... On the right-hand side, the relevant things for hydrofluoric acid. So to remove the activity, I could just abandon the experiment, think, do I really need to know what happens if I remove the silica off the surface of this? That's the easy one. Just don't do it at all. The next one is, OK, then if you're still going to remove the glass, can you remove the hazard? Can you, do, can you remove the hydrofluoric acid from your process somehow? So, yeah, don't use hydrofluoric acid. That would be one option. Look at alternatives. Maybe I could have um, ground off the surface glass. Next would be using an alternative to the hazard. And so for hydrofluoric acid, it would be use a different acid. Uh, enclosing the hazard. So that would be use a fume cupboard. So at least it's kept you know, away from me or some other way of meaning so that the human doesn't need to interact with it. Next, and usually this is almost always, this is um, second from last, is wear protection. And so uh, that was one option was for me to wear one of those protective bibs with a big face mask and kind of thing that you can see Walt wearing there, but with a face mask and, and proper gauntlet. Um, actually, there's normally someone standing over your shoulder with an antidote as well, so if you didn't get splashed, then they can, they can immediately step in. And finally, is follow a good procedure, which is like a safe system of work, you know, a document called um, effectively like tips to handling hydrofluoric acid, which is the, always the worst option because it's prone to human error. Now, that's how to handle hydrofluoric acid, but what we found is that this same approach is useful for any kind of work. And so this is how it can apply to conversion. Because obviously everyone's busy. So it's like, it's like how, how can we get work done quickest? Step one, how did, would we, what would removing the activity be? For conversion, it would be removing the activity. Question whether we need to do this at all. One of our favourite phrases is the simplest type of code is no code at all. So uh, in other words, the easiest type of co code to maintain is just not bothering with that. So really questioning whether the whole activity is needed. One of our clients, I remember like one of the first things we did when we took over the client, took on the client, was we told them to put, it was something like 80% of all their projects on complete hold. We said, look, we don't think those things are as important as this one. And so they immediately reduced their workload massively by us pausing most of what they were working on. That's an amazing way of getting things done. Obviously, it requires having some insight into what's fruitful and what's not, but it's very valuable. The next one is removing the hazard. So, OK, we're going to carry on with the activity, but how can we remove the problematic aspect of it? And that's removing the bottleneck, which I've mentioned before. The next one is use an alternative to the hazard. 
And so in that case, it would be, I guess, using a diff- not just removing the bottleneck, but using a different method for getting the same result. Is there a method that, do- that somehow bypasses that bottleneck? We don't just have to widen the bottleneck, but we'll do it in a completely different way. Uh, next is enclosing the hazard. The nearest analogy to this is, OK, we're going to have the problem. Let's just handle it as well as we can, which is delegating or automating the work. This is a really dangerous one to do before you've done steps one to three. It's surprising how many companies delegate or outsource or automate work that they perhaps shouldn't even be doing. The next one is wear protection, which is basically saying, OK, we're going to go ahead, but let's just um, have systems in place for uh, making, you know, for avoiding the problematic aspect. And the final one is follow a good procedure, which is just documenting the workflow. It's it's effectively not far off. Just let's just try and be diligent, and let's and let's put our heads down and and do a good job. I think the key thing is, so many people when they're looking at their task lists start off at the bottom and forget about the opportunities that you get at the top. There's so much opportunity for for identifying steps one and two in particular, how you can remove the activity and remove the bottleneck. And, uh, and that's really, when, when we look at the amazingly fast-moving companies, that's so often what they're doing right, is they've done an amazing job of, of saying no. If you've, read, if you've read the Steve Jobs book, Steve Jobs was amazing at, at um, strategic neglect and removing whole activities or whole departments or whole product ranges and simplifying to the point that by the time... By the time that Apple was actually working on the lower half of this list, it was on stuff that was absolutely, definitely worth doing. And so I'd say that's a huge thing within your company to be looking at your workload in that, in that way. And that's, and that's all I'm going to talk about for now. That's, a, that's a, probably enough workflows for now. Uh, I hope that was really useful to you. I'm, I, I'm sure it will be. So that was the end of the webinar. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can find the slides and notes via conversionrateexperts.com slash podcasts. While you're there, we've got free reports you can download. You can subscribe to our newsletter, read our articles, and there are also lots of tips and tools you can use for free to increase your website's profits. Uh, if your company generates more than $1 million a year online and you'd like us to grow your business, then please get in touch via our website's contact us page, which is at conversionrateexperts.com slash contact. If you listened to this podcast as a one-off, you might like to subscribe to it to hear more of our talks and seminars. You can learn more at conversionrateexperts.com slash podcasts.